Well, as OJ mentioned, we're beginning our 12-week uh, series on the minor prophets. Uh, it's going to be our summer series, and I'm real excited. I know uh, for me, I've spent a lifetime studying the scripture, uh, but like OJ said, the minor prophets tends to be something that we, we might gloss by and we don't go as deep, and so I've appreciated this opportunity uh, to go really deep into Nahum. Uh, you might be thinking, why do they call them minor prophets? Well, OJ let us know. It's not that they're less than. It's not that they're um, you know, not less than in importance or the ability to find out something about God, his nature, and his character. It just means that they're shorter. Um, but, you know, shorter prophets doesn't sound as cool as minor prophets. And who knows, some of these guys may have been tall. So we don't want to go with a, kind of the shorter prophet idea. We go with the minor prophet idea. But like all of Scripture, um, it helps us to understand God. And that's the most important thing of why we're here today. Who is he? What is he like? What does he care about? What is he up to in the world? Uh, that's fascinating. And it's something that is worthy of our study. I want to take this opportunity right at the beginning to offer a tip to you. Um, in knowing how to study and understand the scripture, especially the continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, and I'll share it with you the same way or uh, through uh, letting you know how I shared this with all four of our children. Um, years ago, I was over at Panera um, and I saw a friend of mine there, his name's Steve, and uh, Steve was really excited this morning. And so he said, Jeff, if you're going back to the office, can you take this Bible? I'd like to have Isaac sign the beginning, the front of it. And I said, sure. But I said, Steve, you seemed real excited. Tell me about it. He said, well, I ran into Dr. Bob Tuttle over at Asbury. And if you know anything about Bob Tuttle, he is a force to be reckoned with. He is just full of the spirit of God. I mean, this guy is great. And he said, you should really think about getting a Bible, buying a Bible that has margins in it so that you can write in it. And he said, what I'd like you to do is spend a year reading cover to cover and in the margins, write notes to one of your children. Spend a year with that child in mind uh, so that at the end of the year, they've got reflections, they've got prayers, they've got thoughts, they've got stories, and a real beautiful piece that you can give them and keep as a memento. And when I heard that, I thought, oh, this is awesome. Oh, I got four kids. Uh, that's a lot of work. Okay, I'm going to do it. So I did it, and, and uh, you know, about five years later, it took me a little longer than four years, but uh, about five years later, I've been able to give this gift to each one of my children. And, um, and at the beginning of each one of their Bibles, I share this lesson, this lesson of, of what is important in understanding the Scriptures. Here it is. When you read the Bible, always remember that God is on a mission. God has a plan. He's continuously working his plan, his purpose, and his mission for mankind. And so the scriptures are none more than an unfolding of that mission. The theologians call this the missional hermeneutic, hermeneutic being the science and the study properly interpreting the scriptures. And the way we do that is when we understand the continuity of God's mission. Since the Fall of mankind, or, or well, let me tell you first before that, is the scarlet thread um, of this mission is redemption, all right? And so a, a way to say this is God is on a mission to bring all peoples of the earth and all creation itself under his good and his glorious reign. That's what God's up to. <clears throat> He's on a mission to bring all the peoples of the earth under his good and glorious reign. Since the fall that's recorded in Genesis 
chapter 3. People are estranged from God. They're separated from God, from his love. That includes people today. All people are born separated from God, but God doesn't want that. He is on a mission to redeem or to free them from their bondage of oppression and slavery to sin and evil in this world and to bring them into right relationship with himself, to bring them to salvation. And it's the same mission from Genesis to Revelation, from the beginning of the Bible to the end. With Adam, he said, Adam, fill the earth with image-bearing worshipers. Go and fill this earth with people who will worship me. To Abraham, he said, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, foretelling that the Messiah would come through his seed. To the nation of Israel, he said, you're a light unto the nations, that my salvation might come to the ends of the earth. Obviously, the Lord Jesus came to seek and save all that is lost. And then he handed the baton to his church and he commissioned them saying, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. From beginning to end, God's mission is to bring all the peoples of the earth and creation itself under his good and his glorious reign. Let's keep that in mind as we begin uh, the study of Nahum. So let me introduce to you today's prophet, Nahum. I found that it was a little bit humorous but he's probably the least studied of all the minor prophets. So thank you, teaching team, for assigning him to me. Um, but I actually enjoyed the challenge. Another thing that I read that I thought was really interesting, and in all the church lectionaries, these are the readings that various denominations put out for their people to read through a different scripture of encouragement throughout the year. Uh, guess what? There's not one verse from the book of Nahum. It's the only book where there's no uh, verse references in any church lectionary. And the reason why is at first blush, the whole thing is about judgment. I mean, who wants as a part of their daily encouragement this verse? The Lord has given a command concerning you, Nineveh. You will have no descendants to bear your name. I will destroy the images and idols that are in the temple of your gods. I will prepare your grave for you are vile. Oh boy. Not going to see that on a cross stitch hanging on the wall someplace in your house, right? Uh, and so, so it's an avoided book. But there's things in here, as you will say, see today, that are so vitally important for us to remember and to know. So I'd like us to understand what's going on a little bit in history. We've got a slide uh, for you to kind of put it all in perspective. <clears throat> and so here we see on the left hand of the slide is prior to the kingdom of Israel being divided, uh, we had King David and King Solomon where Israel was at its pinnacle. It was at its, its high point in history. But then Solomon started to turn later in his life, become disobedient to God. And the kings that followed him were growing greater and greater in their disobedience. And so Israel basically becomes a mess. And so around uh, 950 or so BC, the kingdom is divided into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. There's enmity between the people of God. And so they have two separate kingdoms with two separate kings. And you'll notice kind of the, uh, the brown or the orange, the northern kingdom of Israel um, ends and that they were taken into exile into the nation of Assyria, who is a contemporary to what we're talking about today. They're actually this vile, wicked people that were very brutal, very cruel, took the northern kingdom and actually transported them to the city of Nineveh. And they took them into exile, where the southern kingdom continued on uh, until the time just after Zephaniah, before Haggai, Haggai, 
that, um, that they were taken into captivity into Babylon. And so you see, this is a really tumultuous time for the people of God, uh, the various minor prophets that are speaking and the timing in that they're speaking. Now, you notice that Nahum is um, there with the city of Nineveh. And the city of Nineveh is the capital of this nation, Assyria. And he's up there with Jonah. So these two prophets are speaking directly to the Ninevites. Really interesting to keep that in mind, because if you remember, not to steal the thunder away from the musical that's coming or whoever's preaching on Jonah, but the story of Jonah is fascinating because it demonstrates that God does not delight in the death of the wicked, as it says in the scripture. He doesn't delight in their death. He wants them to come into relationship. That's his mission. And so he sends Jonah. Jonah goes reluctantly and preaches the message, and they repent. But a hundred years later, they forgot. And the next generation of leadership is back to their wicked ways. And that's the context in which we find ourselves uh, today. Um, It was a dark, dark time in Israel's history. It was all about oppression. And they were in deep pain. You can't even barely imagine it in the culture that we've grown up with. I mean, we've experienced freedom and prosperity and abundance but could you imagine being the oppressed people in a time of war where one of the cruelest governments that the planet had ever known was now in power and you were living under that? And so they would be tempted, these people of God, to think, God has forgotten me. Or worse yet, God has given up on me. Or even worse than that, maybe this time, this nation's too powerful for our God. Yeah, he could handle Egypt, but man, these Assyrians are brutal. And so they would be wrestling with this this struggle of faith. And so that's a reminder for all of us. It's during challenging times where, where our faith gets tested. But always remember that God is faithful. And that's one of the comforting things of the story that we'll learn here today. You can trust God in times of difficulty. But it's very difficult to imagine how brutal it was. Uh, the scripture is not very explicit, but it gives us hints. In Nahum 3.1, it says Nineveh is a city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. And this just skims the surface when you actually read the gory details from historians of the day. They skinned and they dismembered people routinely as ways to inflict their reign of terror. They would cut off their heads and they would display them on city walls and in streets and put them on stakes that their friends would have to parade through the city streets. They reigned through terror. Think Nazis of World War II. And then on top of this, you'll notice the southern kingdom is still going. And so what they would do is they would set up kings from that nation that would be puppet rulers under the the, uh, thumb, so to speak, of Nineveh. And so the king during this time of of, uh, Nahum was King Manasseh. And he ruled for 55 years. And the Bible says that he was one of the most evil kings in all of Judah's history. He was an idol worshiper. He promoted idolatry. He built temples to all of their idols. He even sacrificed one of his sons in the fires of, uh, of worship to this false god, Moloch. He is not a cool dude. This is pretty bleak. This is, this is really bad. Not only are they under the brutal rule of Assyria, they've got a horrible and an evil 
leader. So one thing you can do if you uh, came today, uh, if you're tempted to think things are getting bad in our culture, read Nam. It'll put things in perspective for you. Um, it's, uh, it's not as bleak as what he was facing. It's important for us to remember how Israel gets into this position in the first place. How did they get into this predicament? Well, you need to understand the unique relationship that God had with his people and that he has with us as well. He had a covenant with the nation of Israel when he chose them. They were chosen to be the show people of God. They got the blessing of living under his reign, living under his protection, living under his provision. But it came with an agreement that they would have to uphold their end of the bargain, a covenant, if you will, to show God to the world. They were to live in obedience to God. They were to worship him and they were to be his representatives so that God could fulfill his mission. In Isaiah 49, 6, he says, I will make you a light to the Gentiles that my salvation might reach to the ends of the earth. This is what God is up to. It was their job to be his partner in ministry, helping to fulfill the mission of bringing salvation to the world. That's an important part to remember. You remember the scene from Spider-Man where Peter Parker's uncle said, hey, with great power comes great responsibility. Well, it's true of the people of God as well. Um, Israel's privilege was to be the people of God, but it came with a warning that if you decide to disobey and not uphold your part of the covenant, a time of discipline will come. God will not reject you forever, but he will bring discipline so that your wayward heart might find its way back to him. Now, by the time of Nahum's process, uh, prophecy, God's discipline had started to go into the hearts of the people and they started to respond to the discipline. For me, I, I don't wanna let it get this long, all right? When God brings discipline into my life, he always wins. And so it's better to kind of respond quicker uh, than to let him bring the army from the uh, nation of Assyria into my life and, and to cause all kind of havoc, right? And Lord, you just have to squeeze me a little bit. You don't have to crush me. Well, I want to be responsive to you when you bring discipline into our life. But Judah was now finally starting to respond to the discipline of God. And if you look in your bulletins, um, I want to bring to attention verse 15. Uh, verse 15, let's read that together. Look there on the mountains, the feet of one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. All right, Nahum's name, by the way, means comfort. And so he's comforting them with this message. They're waiting and looking and hoping for some ray of hope, some kind of escape from this pain and torture that they're under, some shred of good news to lift their spirits and restore their confidence. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you're just waiting and hoping for good news to come through. Uh, when I think of this, I always think of a story of when I was a kid, uh, one of my grandfathers was in the uh, 30, uh, 28th Infantry Division and fought in World War II a few days after D-Day all the way to the end of the war. And he was on the front lines throughout this entire time. And I remember stories of them fighting through the Hurtigan Forest. Uh, one time he was holed up in a house for three days surrounded by Germans and just in general life as a soldier. Um, my grandmother and my mom showed me a telegram that they had received uh, when my father or my grandfather was wounded in battle. And back in the day, it was not like today where you had cell phones and immediate information. So all they got was a telegram that said, wounded in battle. They didn't know how severe it was, whether 
you know, where he was at. They knew very precious little information. And so they described what it was like the next few days and turned into a couple of weeks of waiting for information. What's going on? And finally, the telegram came and said his injuries are not life-threatening and that he's going to make a full, complete recovery. And he rejoined his unit. Can you imagine just the relief? Oh, my goodness. Well, that's what's going on here. It's the Nahum's day. They're looking and watching for hope. And then there it is. Up on the mountain, the messenger's coming, and he's bringing good news. This is really interesting. Um, I, I, I want to kind of put a parenthesis in here because this is so important. If you have your Bible, you can turn over to Isaiah 52, verses 7 through 9. If not, I'm going to read them to you because it's the exact similar passage over in Isaiah. And these two passages shaped the understanding of the New Testament writers about what is the gospel. You've got to remember Paul and Peter and all those guys, their Bible was the Old Testament, right? So when they say according to the scriptures, they're not talking about according to the New Testament. They're saying according to the Old Testament. And their understanding of the gospel came from these two passages. Isaiah 52, 7. So let's break down what they understood the good news, the gospel to be. Verse 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim shalom, who proclaim peace who bring good tidings and proclaim salvation, who say to Israel, your God reigns. The first aspect of the good news is this idea of God reigning over all. The idea of shalom was this beautiful Jewish concept that life as it it is intended to be under the reign of God, full of life and full of blessing in perfect harmony with our creator. This is the idea of God reigning. It's what... Israel longed for. It's what we long for, for Christ to return, for him to establish his reign, and we live under the good reign of God. And so the first aspect of the gospel is your God reigns. Verse 8, listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. The second part is that although it seems like forever when you're waiting, Our God will return. He's not going to abandon his people. He's not going to leave them or forget them. He'll never forget his promises. Every one of his promises are sure and true. You can take them to the bank. And our God reigns and he returns. And then in verse 9, burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Their understanding of the gospel, our God reigns, our God will return, and our God will redeem. He'll buy us back. He'll pay whatever price is necessary to free us from the oppression we experience. God hates all forms of oppression, all forms of slavery, all forms of cruelty, whether it be in the physical sense of hostile nations or the abusive sense from individuals or the spiritual sense that we're all enslaved by our sins. God hates oppression. And as our redeemer, God is willing to pay whatever price is necessary and take it upon himself to pay that price to provide freedom and restoration to his people if they'll only humble their hearts. And so there up on the mountain, those people in desperation who are waiting and waiting for God, they see it. 
here comes the messenger. And he's bringing good news. God reigns. God's returning. God will redeem. So this is the key to understanding Nahum. It's the theme of redemption. The theme that God's justice will be full and it will be meted out perfectly to all who sin. Let's start in verses two and three of chapter one. Nahum begins and says, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. Here's something very important for you and I to understand about God. God is slow when it comes to expressing his anger but don't take his slowness as he won't do it. God will, by all means, bring punishment to those who are guilty. That's what Nahum is saying. And it's important that we understand this about the nature of God. For many people I know when I'm in conversation, this isn't popular, and this isn't easy. It's like, really? I thought God is a God of love. I thought God is a God of grace. You can't understand his grace till you understand his justice. You can't have one without the other. And so we need to understand. So I suggest to those friends who are struggling with this, no, you want God to hate injustice. It's a good thing. God hates every murder. God hates every act of abuse, every act of violence, every situation where there's a violation of someone else. It turns God's stomach. He hates it. And that's a good thing. I'm glad he does. You see, there's something in us that doesn't like it either when we see that or when we experience it. And this is just a really small thing, but a few, few months ago, I was in a meeting downtown and I parked in one of the parking garages downtown. And when I came back to my car, um, somebody would obviously in my car, I forgot to lock it, and they rummaged around through things. They took a bunch of stuff. Unfortunately, there was nothing of value that they took, but evidently what got their attention is I had some checks out, but they were already cashed, but they took it all. And I just remember that feeling of, ah, I don't like this feeling of being violated. That's, that's, and it's a minor violation, but I still didn't like it. Recently in our neighborhood, uh, there's been this uh, you know, series of thefts that have been going on. And, and so I kind of went onto the Facebook page of the Neighborhood Watch. And there's this truck that was in the neighborhood with a trailer. And they had loaded up one of our neighbor's golf carts. And they spent their hard-earned money and built this really cool golf cart. And there it is. You can see on all the video cameras of the, you know, on the doorbells, this white truck pulling away on the trailer with a golf cart going away wherever it's going to go. How sad is that? To watch your hard-earned money being driven off by a bunch of thieves. And that feeling of being violated. Now, we should be glad that God is a God of justice. He is going to hold to account all sin. But that means the big ones and the little ones. All sin is something that God must bring justice to in equal measure. So that's a predicament for us all. And that's why we see Israel in the state they are. And obviously the judgment coming against Nineveh. But the people of God would know the justice is administered differently depending on whether or not you're his enemy or his follower. And so this is what we need to understand. God is redeemer. 
There's a single word that's the key to understanding uh, this uh, prophet. It's found right at the beginning and right at the end, and it's purposefully written in that way. And the word is abar, abar. It's the Jewish word which is translated Passover. And so the readers would immediately make the connection that this great redemptive event in Israel's history, when they saw Passover, they would think God's Passover of the sins of the nation of Israel and his judgment passing over Egypt. Exodus 12, 12 says, on the same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood of the lamb will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So this is a very similar event that Nahum is purposely using this word to help them to understand. In verse, uh, uh, chapter one, verses seven through eight, um, he says, the Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. All right, Israel, trust me. Trust me to be good in my redemption towards you. But verse eight, with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end to Nineveh and he will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. The word overwhelming flood is actually the word abar. All right, with an overwhelmingness, I will pass over you in judgment, Nineveh. My judgment's coming and it will be meted out fully. What's interesting is it connects to verse uh, 19 in chapter three. He says there, nothing can heal you, Nineveh. Your wound is fatal. All who hear the news about you will clap their hands at your fall. For who has not felt your endless cruelty? And there's the same word, abar. Your cruelty has been so great that it has passed over the known world. So to the degree that your cruelty has passed over the known world, my judgment is going to be passing over you. The readers would just rejoice at the thought of God coming to bring judgment to the oppressor nation. Our God indeed is up to the challenge. But what about Israel? Well, we need to be reminded that God's preference is not that he would judge you. That's not what God wants. We see that in the story of Nineveh. He sent Jonah 100 years earlier, and that time they repented. But this time their hearts were hardened and they were unwilling to repent in 2 Peter 3.9, Peter says, God does not want anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's his plan. That's his mission. That's his desire. So God in his perfect justice, some experience his wrath to the full, but others escape his wrath and it passes them by. How is that possible for God to still be just? God's plan all along is Jesus. That's his plan. He's the great redeemer. He's the one that makes it possible. He's the Passover lamb. He lived the life that we were supposed to live, a perfect, sinless life, so that he could be the spotless lamb of God, and he died the death that we all deserved. The scriptures say that he literally took the sin of the world upon himself and became sin. So then, in that moment on Calvary's tree, on the cross, God poured out the fullness of his wrath and Jesus took that punishment and it passed over him so that it could pass you by if you'll accept that free gift. 
That's how God brings redemption. He doesn't wink an eye at sin. He doesn't sweep it under the rug. He deals with it. And he deals with it by taking it upon himself. That's what a redeemer does. A redeemer pays whatever price to buy the freedom of his people. Man, is that good. So this is none other than a reminder of the gospel. So what... Let me just ask a couple of questions. Where are you? There may be some here today that aren't quite sure what I think about this whole Christianity thing and the message of Christ dying for my sins. And I get that. So let me just encourage you, wherever you're at, take as long as you need, but no longer than necessary in your quest to get your questions answered. But if you're not taking active steps, let me just encourage you. I'd love to talk with you. I'd love to uh, help you find a place where you can safely explore the questions that you have. Don't just sit back, do something. Move towards understanding. For the majority of you here today, I realize that you've already uh, put your faith in Christ and he is your redeemer. So let me just encourage you, every time you hear this, it should be like seeing that great messenger up on the mountains with good news. Just something in your heart should smile. That's you. You are being freed from the oppression of sin and slavery in your life. That's a really good thing. But also let me encourage you to to ask yourself, where am I at in joining with God in his mission? Where am I at in in, kind of upholding that part of what God is calling me to do as he's on his mission of extending his reign to the hearts of people and all of creation itself? That's what he's doing. So where are you? God has given each one of us, uniquely and specifically, people who are far from God that are in our lives that are there for us to love. And you can pray, and you could build relationships. Do you realize that most non-Christians say that they don't know a Christian well enough to say that they can trust them? So it may just be simply looking out for people that you can build relationship and trust with. So when that time comes, that they have that question, they can open up to you because you're safe, because there's somebody they know they can trust. Let me just encourage you, when you decide, I call it getting in the game, when you decide to get in the game, it changes everything. When you decide, yes, God, I want to join you in your work, and he can use you, and he will, if you'll look to him. So I'm thankful for this prophet, Nahum, and my encouragement to you this morning is just rejoice in what God has done for all of us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this prophet Nahum uh, that is often uh, hard to understand and and, uh, people tend to avoid. Lord, And I'm just thankful that we had the opportunity to look at this message and, and to be reminded of the gospel, to be reminded of how deeply you love us and what extent you will go, um, Lord, to take upon yourself uh, what it takes to provide for our redemption. And so, God, I... I uh, commit each person here to you today and trust by your spirit that you'll apply it to all of our lives. And we pray this in Christ's risen and powerful name. Amen.